<clears throat> you can follow along in your bulletin. It's uh, Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the other one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord God Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It just did work there. Uh, just a note, uh, we forgot to announce, I think, that uh, tomorrow night there's prayer for Nepal in this room. At, Irene, is it 7 or 7.30? Yes, it's 7 or 7.30. Um, nobody knows the time. Uh, the prayer for Nepal and also for the Burgies tomorrow night here um, in this room. I believe it's 7.30, so... A couple of years ago, I read a, a book uh, on on gaming. So, video games, computer games. Uh, if if you're not a gamer, if you're not someone who regularly plays a game on a console like a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox, uh, now games, of course, are, are pretty common on people's phones. Uh, and uh, and you would know even if, if even if you're not a gamer, you would know because you've known people who you would say they've become maybe addicted to gaming. It's not like a, a regular addiction. But you can't stop playing a game if you get a little further each time. 
And games are designed as a huge business. Games are designed with the intent of keeping, you know, keeping people coming back to play. And now, of course, games that are that are on phones have all kinds of things. Have you seen these ads? Arnold Schwarzenegger um, for some, you know, and, and these games are free to download on your phone, but you can buy extra things, and that's how they make so much money. One of the th- and 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 gaming now, and the theory behind game design is not just influencing entertainment, but it's influencing education medicine, all kinds of areas in our world because people are saying the same principles that are used to connect people to games and get them to go further and further and achieve more and more, right? How can we use those things in other areas in the world? In fact, one of the... I'm just telling you all this stuff from this book. One of the, one of the areas where gaming is having the most influence is in care for the elderly and, and how you can help people's minds as they're aging and keep them engaged even if they can't leave the home Uh, What kind of things can they do uh, through some of these systems? One of the principles with gaming, and one of the key design principles of gaming, is um, this is particularly true for games on cell phones and stuff, is you shouldn't have to have any instructions. Or the instructions need to be super minimal. Press this to do this. That's basically it. Here's how you jump. Uh, and so the idea is you can pick up the console, pick up the controller, pick up the phone, and just start playing. I have this in my mind with this particular text that Aaron has read to us, because this text sounds like a bunch of rules and technical language that tells you the how about something, and you might not have asked to hear it. You just want to play. Or in this case, you just want to live the Christian life. And Paul has gone from Romans 1 to 8... We talked about this when we talked about Romans last year. Some of the loftiest language in all of the Christian scriptures. Mal referred to it this morning down at Breakfast and Communion. That Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite portions of scripture. And person after person says this. Person of Christian faith. I've never heard anybody say that Romans chapter 9 is one of their favorite parts of scripture. I've never seen it on the wall of a church. Romans chapter 1 to 8 you get the presentation of the Christian gospel. And it's fantastic. It's lofty. Romans 12 to 16, you get how do we live in the light of the Christian gospel? Or you could put it this way. How do we live in the light of God's mercy that is demonstrated in turning to us in Jesus Christ? What does that leave? Romans 1 to 8 is the description of the gospel. Romans 12 to 16 is how to live in light of God's mercy. Romans 9 to 11 is what? Well, it's like the rules and the description Uh, Not so much rules, but the technical language that nobody asked for. And they just said, yes, I agree. And they didn't read the agreement. They just went on. They're hard to understand, these chapters. They seem to be addressing a specific context that perhaps we don't share. The, The language here is addressing two groups of people, Jewish people and Gentiles. It's mostly addressing Jewish people and saying, you always thought you were the ones who lived under God's promise, but maybe God's going to let some other people in. And then this really terrible thing. Maybe you're not all living under this either. So there's this this, presentation of the gospel, and then there's this big question that people are asking. Who's in? What's this for? And for that reason, this is essential, chapters 9 to 11. If you consider these chapters and think of them well, it will impact each relationship that you have. In fact, each encounter that you have you'll begin to know what it means to live in the light of the gospel, even through some of these technical chapters. 
In the scope of the book, I think of it like a presentation. I mean, I've been to a number of lectures. You might go to, I mean, if you go to university, you, you, you go to lectures uh, both in undergrad and grad school. If, you, uh, if you're part of a sales team or something like that, you go to presentations, all kinds of things. If you're interested, I'm looking at Bill, if you're interested in boating, somebody's going to do a presentation on some aspect of it. And, there, and, and every one of us has been in this kind of thing where you're tracking with the person who's presenting and they go like, they, they say this and they say this and you're like, oh, and you're really right there. And all of a sudden, it might not happen suddenly actually, but you find, wait a minute, I'm thinking about something totally different. You do it in sermons too. How did they lose me? And often they lose you on this kind of thing. It seemed all of a sudden that they got technical. And they did this terrible thing. They stopped talking about you and you lost interest. That's when you really lose interest in sermons. When you think, well, it doesn't really have anything to do with me. Right? But this amazing thing is being presented. We get to chapters 9 to 11. And then, oh, right. Why have... Why have I been lost? In the context of this book, the writer of the book, Paul, has in his mind the Jewish faith. He has in his mind the audience of people that were his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. He's described the Christian gospel, and then he's addressing this question, does this automatically apply to all Jewish people who saw themselves as the promised people? And Paul clearly says, in all of this extended discussion in 9 to 11, it's not being Jewish that makes you understand this. Makes you get this. And then there is, I think it's verse 24, where it says, um, this, this is also for the Gentiles. That would be a striking verse to somebody who thought that they were the people of promise, but, the, but others were outsiders. Not only does he seem to be saying, not only is he saying, look, it's not just that you were born Jewish that makes you the promised people. You know what else? Some other people might have the same benefits that you have. And overall, the whole thing is, is he's just saying, and what's, it's not up to you anyway, it's up to God. This is much bigger than you can comprehend. Look at the headings in the section, 9 to 11. Salvation to all, the Gentiles are grafted in. So what's happening is that Paul is considering a question that the people are asking, but he's not actually answering the question. Instead, and Scripture often does this, and often you're not patient enough with Scripture to get to this. So a question is posed. In other words, it's like me preaching. And I say, I can tell right now you're thinking this. And I name the question. And Paul's doing that constantly in, in his letters. But often what he does, and preachers do this as well, I know you're asking this question. And then he describes the question in a few different ways. But he never answers it. He moves them instead to a different question. He's, what he's saying to them is, you're asking the wrong question. What's, what's the question that they're asking? Well, it's basically this. Who is in and who is out? If you read 9 to 11 and you just, who is in and who is out, you'll see that that's what he's playing around with. But he's not going to actually answer the question. Centuries, millennia of Christian history have done everything they can to answer this question. Who is in? In other words, now, whatever tradition you grew up in, you're going to have different words for this. Who is saved and who's not saved? Who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? Right? But it's all the same question. Who's in, who's out? And then the theological discussion for this come around certain people. And so you then have terms Calvinism. Calvinism, which basically says God chooses who's in. Arminianism, right? Which says, well, actually, it's up to you to choose. 
from Augustine all the way to Billy Graham. We've got to think of somebody more current. Rick Warren. I don't know. All the way from early Christian history to now, we've been trying to answer this question. But what we haven't seen is that Paul, at least in this chapter, after this outlining of this glorious gospel, is to some degree refusing to answer this question. He's trying to move us to a better question. In the text and in the debate through history, there have been two key considerations. This is going even a step further. If you lived in the 17th century or before, so 1600 and before, that sounds like a long time ago, but in the scope of history, it's not that long ago. If you lived in the 17th century or before, I guarantee you this, you'd believe in God. Almost nobody did not believe in God. It was automatic. Now, if you live in 2015, is it automatic that people believe in God? No. What happened? In 17th century and prior, who was present? I have, well, God was the, the key consideration. The presence of God was the biggest reality. And you were inadequate before God. And so, if you take that the wrong way, and you turn God into someone who is hateful and spiteful and, you know, obsessed about smiting you and you've done something wrong, child, then you start to have a particular understanding of God that I will say this, that isn't actually the God revealed in Jesus Christ. But Christian faith propagated to some degree this idea that God is always present, check, that's good, but that really he's mostly disappointed in humanity, which isn't what scripture says. So what happened is a whole bunch of people, and hear this, I say, thanks be to God, said, I don't believe that. But what did they do? They threw out the whole system. I don't believe in God at all. And so they moved the center of the universe from being God to being what? The human. We live, you, the reason that you have people around you who think like they do, you think it's all like their own decision and your own decision. But it's the history, the common history that we share. So now, since the 17th century and onwards, humanity took center stage because God, this concept of God was rejected. And now, instead of God judging us, right? I know this already with you and your friends. We judge God. God, this is C.S. Lewis would put it this way. God is in the dock. He's in the witness stand. We judge him. And we determine, do we want to believe in him? We'll take this piece and reject this other piece. If God in scenario one is hateful and harsh and spiteful, my contention is, and I've got a lot of other people backing me up on this, I'm not, I'm joining a long line of of, uh, much more intelligent people than myself. If God is hateful and angry and spiteful, That's the primary definition of his character. That's a pagan concept of God. That's a concept of God, and you know this, right, from studying your history, that the gods were out to get you, basically. But that misunderstanding carried into some Christianity. In other words, if the concept of God that we have is a terrible one, the wrong one, that's more important. If it's the wrong concept of God, if it's not the God revealed in Jesus Christ, then it isn't so bad that that concept of God is done away with. However, if this is all there is then, if in rejecting that concept of God, I now put myself at the center of history and humanity at the center of history, 
that comes with a tremendous cost as well. And now in 2015, we're living in a, in a time where we're much more aware of some of that cost. And so we have people struggling with those things, those things saying, well, I need to be spiritual but not religious or whatever way you talk about it. Knowing that humanity can't be the center, that's not enough. I heard a Franciscan friar speaking. It was in a CBC podcast, and he's a world-famous singer now. He's apparently, though this is, you know, thousand and some years of history, or almost that, um, 900 and something, I suppose. He's the first Franciscan friar, apparently, with a recording contract. And he's world famous now. He goes everywhere singing. He, he can't believe it. He still, you know, wears his Franciscan robes, and he's taken a vow of poverty. And the other thing that he does is he makes furniture when he's near Assisi, where he lives. And uh, the interviewer was because he performs in New York, and he recently was doing a little tour in Canada, but he's back now living in community with the other friars. And uh, the interviewer asked him, like, what do you do with all the applause? Because people, if they hear something beautiful, you go and you hear somebody who can sing, and they just, they, they take over. And so he's wherever he is performing, and the crowd goes crazy. And so the interviewer said to him, what do you do with those applause? And he literally, before she was finished the question, he started giggling. I'm not, not laughing, giggling. Like that self-effacing kind of giggle, you know? And he said, well, he said a couple things. One I have in my notes. I was going to use this in another sermon, and I will, because you might not remember anyway. The first thing he said is he said, I, I know this. They think they're applauding for me, but they're not really longing for me. They're longing for God. And they might not know that, but I know it. And he said, and the other thing is, I realize that I'm not the center of the universe. And so when they clap, I laugh. But he didn't end there. He said, I'm not the center of the universe, but I am at the center of God's love. Held in God's love. He talked about announcing the gospel. That's why he uses his voice, he says, which is just a gift. I can tell you what your main problem is in your life. You ready? Just looking at who would this not apply to. Um... Maybe Tara. <laughs> no, like I just, um, but I can tell you the main problem in your life. You want to know what it is? It's, uh, it's that you, you want to live your life thinking, or I don't know if you want to do this, but you do this. You live your life thinking that this is all there is, or you are, you are the end of your imagination. And I'm good with an inert pagan God being dismissed. But once God is removed, if human agency, in other words, your thoughts of yourself, how am I feeling right now? Oh no, I might not feel good this week or next week. If human agency becomes the end all and be all, we have now become, we now find ourselves in a world with no beyond. Now, a world with no beyond is a world that isn't open to the gospel. And that's why it is the Christian gospel in my faith that is a contrast to all of this. The excesses of religion and the emptiness of a humanity-centered understanding. The gospel is that God is above all, but that God 
is good. And God has turned not away from us, but towards us. This is the declaration of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, and that God offers salvation. And that every day in your life, I'm not saying you'll feel this every day, but that every day in your life, no matter what you are, no matter where you are, and no matter what you're going through, every day in your life, there is the presence of God. He's turned towards this world in Jesus Christ, not away. God's character is displayed fully in the love and sacrifice of Jesus. And if you can take a God who sends Jesus Christ to take on the deepest pain and sin in the world ever in history, and you can make that God a hateful God, then you're doing something that isn't Christian. This is not first about me, but it's also not first about you, thanks be to God. You knew it wasn't about me, didn't you? It's just you thought it was about you. Two big words. This is how we start. Now that we've our, our world has rejected the presence of God to some degree, we start with what's called in education anthropology. All anthropology means is consideration of or study of the human. So if you take anthropology, if you've taken those courses, you know what I'm talking about. Human societies, the way people interact. There's various branches of anthropology. And that's how we start. And that's how you start your prayer life. That's how you start your spiritual life. Most of it starts with you. What you feel, what you think, right? Proper understanding of the gospel and proper understanding of God starts with God. That's theology. In other words, the most important thing in the world right now and in this room and in your consideration is not how you feel or what's happening to you. Praise be to God. It's how is God present and who is God as revealed by Jesus Christ. Now, after you, start, you, you think about God, you can start thinking about humanity. Most of the world starts with the human. And I'll give you the, the evidence of this. Just what you talk about with people. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking that you become hyper-religious and always talk about God and Jesus. Because, I mean, I'm going to talk to you about the Canucks if you do that. But... But in our world, the way that lives are measured are experiences, vacations, mental feeling, what you feel, what your kids have achieved. I mean, we just have a son who, we have a son who graduated from high school last year, so you have those conversations with other parents and your, this, your school or other schools and, and, and people, tr- you know, even, even nice people try to tell, oh, so-and-so is doing really well. I mean, they're at such and such a place and they're doing, Right? Achievement, self-improvement, it's all based around self, often. Starting with the human. Your successes, your achievements. Christian faith, to some degree, and stay with me here for a moment with this. Christian faith, to some degree, says no to all of that. In other words, that's not how we consider our lives, first through our own experiences. That's not the place to start. The trouble is that religion also starts with the human as well. How does religion do that? You know, right? Have you made a decision? Have you read your Bible? Have you done the following things? Are you in or are you out? Religion often starts with the human. Even sometimes the presentation of the gospel. We are here and God is here. But really the emphasis is what are we supposed to do to get to God. 
Christian faith can be largely anthropological. It is true that I'm a sinner. It is true that I'm a sinner. And hear this, and this is like a really freeing thing to say to you. It's also true that you're a sinner. But that's not ever the first thing. The first thing is God and how God relates to the world. The first question in... I've got it up there, sorry. Whoa. The first question in the human way of thinking, religiously, is this. What about me? So that sounds selfish, right? What about me? Am I going to heaven or something like this? Or some of you who have kids, maybe grown kids who haven't made a religious commitment, you then say, what about my child? See how that's the first question in the anthropological understanding? Where the first question should be, if we're going to understand the gospel, who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? And so my question simply to you this morning is, in your way of thinking about faith, in your way of thinking about your loved ones, in your way of thinking even about yourself, can you start with that second question instead of the first? Who is the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? Now think about your son or your daughter or your failures. See how it's different? And Paul in 9 to 11, you can see I'm not delving into word by word and text. These are the questions he's playing with. A faith centered on humanity divides humanity. Paul plays with those very ideas. And many religions do this. Humanity is divided into the saved and the damned. The elect and the reprobate and the in and the out. And then in our desire to come up with the answer to the wrong question, we engage in endless theological debate. And there's two primary ways that people answer this debate, who's in, who's out, in Christian thinking. One school of thought says, well, God decides. He saves some. He damns others. There's scriptural backing for this. He'll have mercy on who he has mercy. He'll harden those who he wants to harden, right? And so some people, that's the way they think. There's some churches, that's, that's primarily what they're teaching. What would that mean for evangelical kind of, you need to pray a prayer? Well, of course, God saves some, damns others, and there's nothing we can do about it. The second major way of thinking is that we decide. Now, most of you in this church, this is the, this is the line of thinking that you grew up in. I mean, I know, not all of you, but most of you. You grew up, and that decision for God was the key thing. Right? Have you prayed the prayer? Have you accepted Christ? Hear this. I want you to pray the prayer. I want you to come to faith. I believe strongly in Christian conversion. I went through a very uh, intense conversion experience myself. But the center of your faith is not you. And some of you lived in that way of thinking so much that the lens turned on to you. Not just you, but other people. And whether they had prayed the prayer. And were they in or were they out. Not so much on the God who has turned towards us in Jesus Christ. To understand election, which means God, you know, who's in, who's out. It's best, and this is what Paul's doing in this whole section. It's best to focus on Jesus Christ, not human. So if you're a Jewish person and Paul's talking to you, you want to decide who's in and who's out, all Paul's going to do is confuse you. Look, you want to play this game? If God chose this, then that's God. What are you going to argue about? But if it's this, then this. If God grafts in the Gentiles, 
It's best to focus on Jesus. Because Jesus will tell you what God does for people. Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? So in my longing, and you catch this at the end of the text and the beginning of chapter 9, in my longing to have people come to faith, to pray that, that Jesus Christ would come into their hearts, in my longing for that, my focus is still on God. Heavenly Father, I pray for these I love. I want them to know this gospel. I want them to know that you are good. I want them to know that life is found in you. But what do I do next? Sure, I witness, but ultimately I trust. What am I trusting in? God's goodness. Now, I'm not giving you, and this is what lots of theologians get in trouble for, they begin to talk like this, and then they're called either there's someone who's into damnation or there's someone who's into universalism or whatever it is. That's not happening in this text. I'm simply saying that the focus is on God. God turns towards us, not away. Incarnation is never an afterthought. Right? And somehow, when I was growing up, if if you thought about it enough, and the thing is most people don't think about it enough because they're just thinking about themselves. But if you got into your faith and you thought about it enough, you'd go, okay, so it sounds like God's perfect. To be in relationship with God, we have to be perfect, but we sinned, so God sent Jesus. Do you see, do you see the... So Jesus was plan B. Please hear this, Christians. Jesus Christ was never plan B. He's the fullness of God. He would have died for you and become incarnate if you had never sinned. I can't imagine that's impossible. It is impossible. Theologians need to wear a shirt. Jesus was never plan B. The fullness of the gospel that God is for us, not against us. That God is loving. That God is merciful and powerful and mighty and just and tender. And our chief duty. What's our chief duty now? After we come to this faith, what's our chief duty? It's to be loved by God and to participate in God's ongoing salvation. We are to be witness to the gospel. We do have a place in this. This isn't saying, well, you know, God just loves everybody so we can just not have to worry about it. I'm not saying that at all. That would be, um, that would be an abuse of, of what I'm saying. We have, a pl- we have a role to play. We are to be loved by God and to participate in God's ongoing salvation. We are to be witness to this gospel. We want people to see the good news of God in Jesus Christ. What if they don't see it? What if they don't see it and now my heart could break? You know what if they don't see it? They could live as if there isn't a loving God. And then all kinds of darkness can overwhelm people. I want them to see it desperately. I want you to see this. We are not declarers of doom, even as we may point to the empty promises of centering a life on humanity. God's major event is always the incarnation. And our message, because of the incarnation, is one of hope and life. I told you what your main problem is, and now I'm going to tell you what's killing you. And it's not just, you know, how long is this sermon going to be? I can tell you what's killing you. Now, here I might exempt some people here including a name I mentioned earlier. But, but for the most part, the same thing is killing all of us. You want to know what it is? You're longing for control. 
if you could just let go. But you can't. Longing for control that comes out in secular life, and we all have secular life. We all have to pay taxes and figure out a way to pay the bills and just living in this world. Life apart from, I mean, this, and for people who don't believe in God, this would be life without any concept of God. In a secular world, the longing for control comes out in a longing for earthly security so that you think people who've made it in this life are the ones who you can look at them and think, well, they don't have any problems because they have enough money or because they have a relationship that looks good or whatever it might be. The longing for control and secular consideration comes out in the longing for earthly security, the longing for leisure, the longing for self, like to please self. This is gather ye rosebuds while ye may. This is carpe diem. Seize the day because it's going to be gone. And if you don't get it now, the interesting part is that Christians have, you know, latched on to those philosophies as if they're... In Christian faith, no, you, you know what? You could lose this day and it would still be okay. You might not get what you want. In the religious world, the longing for control comes out in the longing for eternal security. And so you become part of a church that tells you, here's exactly what you need to do for eternal security. And if it's a very religious church... Then, the, then it's really, really clear, right? And you can know who's in and who's out. What must I do to acquire eternal life? Who asked that? Do you remember? Bible quiz. The rich young ruler. What must I do to acquire eternal life? And what did Jesus do? Sent him away disappointed. Jesus' heart broke for him. All he wanted was eternal security. Christian faith is, oh, no, I should have, this is going to bother you maybe, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's not the whole of what I believe, so don't go, how can you say that? Christian faith is not first about going to heaven instead of going to hell. Our longing is not even for eternal security. Our longing is for Jesus Paul says it here. Did you hear it? He says, beginning of chapter 9, I wish that my brothers and sisters would know this gospel. In fact, I would rather be in eternal darkness if they could know the light. Longing is for Jesus Christ first. Our world is dedicated to the enhancement of human control. The church is often the same, just religiously so. Become a better person. Some churches are focused on that, your behavior. Or get religious certainty. Psalm 100, verse 3, It is God that hath made us, and we, and not we ourselves. Thanks be to God. I can say as a celebratory declaration, my life is not my own. When I say that, knowing that there's a loving God as revealed by Jesus Christ, do you know what I can let go of? And I'm not saying I do it very well, but do you know what I can let go of? My longing for control. 
The question, how can we know anything about God? And the Sunday school answer, but it is the answer, is always Jesus Christ. How can we know anything about God? And we are not then, we don't have the need to convince or persuade or cajole. Though I would implore and and speak to people and witness to people, you should come, you should know faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to convince, persuade, or cajole if the gospel is true. If the gospel is true, we need to announce and proclaim and herald the good news, even if it's done with the beautiful singing of a Franciscan friar. And if your eyes have been opened, if you have faith, then you can do this. I could look into all of each of your eyes, and it's hard to do because the spotlights and stuff. But this is what I want to do, like an honesty. I want to look into each of your eyes, and I want to say, now this would be for people of Christian faith, people who have become aware of this. I would look into each of your eyes, and I would say, do you know that you can announce this gospel? You say, well, I can't do anything. I can't preach, or don't do this, or I'm not really that really. Do you know that if you have been awakened to this gospel, your life can announce the truth? in the world. Evangelical preaching is not, though this is the misnomer, what has come to people think of evangelical preaching. They think it's, uh, now there's going to be altar call and you come up. And evangelical preaching, people think that it's a focus on the human activity. The most evangelical preaching is always, it might include what I just described, but the most evangelical preaching is always Do you see what God has done? The big story is always Jesus Christ. And if you look at Jesus Christ, that's the slide I have on the screen. If you look at Jesus Christ, you will see that God is not closed. Now consider Jesus on the next part, that but part. God is not closed, but I see Jesus. God is revealing. God is not elusive and reserved, but he's self-giving. God is not aloof from creation, but he is engaged in creativity, goodness, and beauty, and truth, wherever it's found in the world. The God of Scripture is revealed in Jesus Christ, and so we get to the end of the section. Jesus Christ is the stone of stumbling. All this conversation, what if God chooses some and not not others? If God chooses some and not others, then what's the need for Jesus Christ? You could just choose those people. There's no need for Jesus. If it just comes down to your choice, then there's not really a need for Jesus anyway. Maybe temporarily, because you need to get to God, and there's no way, and Jesus has the pass. But once he gives you the pass, you don't really need him anymore, right? Neither one of those thinking, neither one of those ways of thinking can fully describe Christian faith. And what does Paul say about that? That's why Jesus becomes the stone of stumbling, the catastrophe of religion, and the catastrophe of the self-centered life. Jesus shows us more. Jesus shows us beyond. I love the language in the, in the ESV that Aaron read. It says this, They have stumbled over the stone of stumbling. And if it's someone whose life is centered on self, it's, it's very, very hard to say, I will trust in Jesus Christ. It's a stone of stumbling. And if it's somebody whose life is centered on religion, it's very, very hard to, to fully put your faith in Jesus Christ other than a means to an end. The world needs revelation from without. The challenge is always that we are not our own. So the first question is not, and I give this to you as a gift, and I struggle with it like you, so the first question is not, what about me? The first question is, 
Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? Now take that question back to your life and your challenges. The first question is not who is saved even. But what has God done? First question is not who is damned, but what is God like? The first question is not what religious things do I need to do, but how is my life to announce this gospel? And so, you might be an artist, be gifted in that way, then your life will announce the gospel. If you are open to this, if you're a singer, your voice can announce the gospel. We have elders in our church who lead. And part of their leadership is to announce the gospel. Intercessors in our church who intercede. And in that praying, there is this announcing of the gospel. Some of you are good at visiting and have the gift of hospitality. Do you know that when you go to visit somebody, you're announcing the gospel of God? This is the call of our lives. It's a much better question. And what about me? Let's pray. So God, guide us in this. Help us to have a faith that is centered on Jesus Christ. These are not easy things. And I would say, Lord, at this time, we are thankful for those who have come before us. Our objective is not to uh, denigrate the past. We want to grow in this faith. We are so grateful for those who have called us to this faith. But we would ask that this faith would uh, be something that matters to us, that we consider that we strive to grow in the knowledge, Lord Jesus Christ, of what you have done for us. So would you bless this church and other churches as we seek to live out and announce the gospel, to be witness to what you have done for us and this whole world. Thank you that you've given us this message of hope and this message of reconciliation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.